I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Shruti Nayak. Dr. Nayak is an assistant professor in the Departments of Pathology and Medicine at New York University, where her lab studies the dynamic interactions between immune cells, epithelial cells, and microbes in barrier tissues that interface with the environment, such as skin, lung, and gut tissue. Her lab focuses on questions related to three areas. One is inflammation, tissue regeneration, and cancer. Another is host microbe interactions, and the other is early life immunity. We talked about a variety of subjects. In particular, we, we talked about inflammation what inflammation is and how it manifests in the body and what the cellular underpinnings of inflammation actually are. We talked about the concept of inflammatory memory, the ability of various cells in our body to actually remember what caused inflammation and how to respond to it so that the body can respond faster to an inflammatory insult. In the future, we talked about how things like the in utero environment that a fetus is in during pregnancy can influence how it develops later in life, how, how the fetus and the developing child can actually, their bodies can remember what happened in terms of you know the dietary composition of the mother during pregnancy or an infection the mother had and how that impacts the future uh, health and the, the physiology of the developing fetus. We talked about things like diet and how diet modulates the way that our body instigates inflammatory events. We talked about epigenetics and the epigenetic mechanisms by which cellular memories of inflammation are actually stored in different cells of the body. How, in other words, uh, our cells can sort of rearrange the, the physical structure of DNA so that genes are either accessible or inaccessible and how that connects with the ability to actually remember things like inflammatory events. We talked about skin, how skin works and how stem cells in the skin are constantly regenerating to create new skin cells, how that ties into regeneration and repair of tissue damage, and how all of those things are, are linked together under the general umbrella of inflammation and how that works in the body. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can check out the free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll get information in that newsletter, including upcoming guests and topics for the podcast, interesting research related to the guests I've spoken to or things that I'm looking at in terms of who might come on the show in the future, as well as other interesting items and other written content I'm producing either on my Substack or elsewhere. I also share interesting quotes and snippets from books and things that I think people will find interesting if they like what I'm doing on the show. So if you want to stay up to date on all things related to the podcast and the subjects I cover, please subscribe for free at mindandmatter.substack.com. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
immunity is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Shruti Nayak. Especially after reading your review paper, uh, I'm not sure I was ever this excited to learn about skin before. <laughs> well, I think people really underestimate our skin. They think it's sort of this like flimsy barrier, you know, and it's actually really remarkable. There's a lot of really interesting biology there that you can learn from not only just to understand skin health, but to understand how our tissues work across the body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you just start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what, what your lab studies? Sure. Um, hi, my name is Dr. Shruti Nayak. I am an assistant professor at NYU, and my lab studies how immune cells talk to non-immune cells in our body's barrier tissues, like the skin and the gut, and what those conversations mean for maintaining health and, and driving disease. Yeah. And, and a lot of what we'll talk about today has to do with inflammation and how our body instigates inflammatory events and, and why it does that and how that can go well and how that can go awry. Can you just start off by just having, um, let's have a broad discussion about inflammation and what it is and, and what it's supposed to be doing. I think we all have an intuitive sense of what inflammation is, but when you think at the level of cells and stuff, what is inflammation? Yeah, it's sort of interesting, right? Because people throw this word inflammation around a lot. Like you see all of these like herbal supplements that can curb inflammation or, you know, your probiotics that are anti-inflammatory. Um, so I think scientists are still trying to figure out exactly what inflammation is, but the textbook definition is sort of redness, swelling, heat, the kind of visible thing that you get when you have, for instance, a cut, an infection, you know, pain, um, that you feel. And those are all sort of, uh, you know, canonical definitions of, of acute inflammation. Um, and then there's a second type of inflammation called chronic inflammation, which is a little bit stealthier and a little bit harder to detect. Um, and this type of inflammation is just like a very low grade production of mediators from immune cells. Uh, that interact with other cell types. And sometimes these mediators can be really damaging, like they can be uh, reactive oxygen species, types of chemicals that can damage other cells or that can, that can um, essentially, evolutionally, they're meant to kill bad guys, pathogens, but produced in low levels can hurt our own body and cause pathology. Um, so those are the two broad types of inflammation that we talk about. But I think there's still... It's very, it's surprising that this is an age old concept and yet we're still learning about what it is and what it does. Yeah. Yeah. No, a, a good distinction that I think we'll come back to many times is, is the distinction between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. Inflammation is, yeah, I think generally something our bodies, we want our bodies to turn on and then turn off at the appropriate time, but sometimes that doesn't happen. It becomes chronic and it becomes a problem. The other thing I want to ask you about here, just on inflammation generally, is 
is inflammation something that we can think about very generically, or is the nature of inflammation different depending on what's driving it? So if you get a, a cut or a bruise, is the is what's happening under the hood going to be completely and utterly different from the inflammation you get from an infection, or are there commonalities that that sort of cut across all of those, all of the things that can drive an inflammatory event? Yeah, I mean, I think the the answer is both, right? <laughs> that's that may sound like a cop out, but I think that one biology is redundant. So oftentimes, many features that are involved in a cut may also be involved in an infection. Um, and that's some of the things that we're realizing. We, we actually recently had a study in our lab uh, from our lab that showed that, um, you know, certain immune derived factors uh, that are really critical for killing bugs are also really critical for signaling into your skin cells, your epithelial cells, and helping them adapt to low oxygen environments and helping them heal after a cut. So we're realizing that our body has repurposed a lot of immunological signals that are involved in um, like pathogen response, dealing with pathogens for other purposes. I think, again, you're raising the question that needs to be, needs more attention and needs to be answered, which is how, how are the rules set for inflammation? What happens when you have a cut versus when there's an infection versus versus an autoimmune response, right? Where inflammation has really just gone out of control. Um, and it seems as though the same players show up again and again, and in some contexts they're doing good things. And in some contexts they are really out of control. The checks and balances have been taken away and they're just, they've kind of amplified to a point where your body doesn't know how to deal with it. And that's when disease ensues. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that's just occurring to me is how does one know in their everyday life, whether inflammation is operating within the normal regime that makes it adaptive and when it gets out of control, uh, a simple example that, you know, we see all the time in our lives is, you know, you get like a bad bruise or something. And presumably you want that inflammation to happen to some extent to, to handle the tissue damage that's going on there. One of the first things people in our culture do is they immediately put ice on it or something to try and yeah. quell the inflammation. Um, is that an appropriate way to handle that? And more generally, you know, how, how do we think about whether or not we want to sort of let our body do its thing versus uh, try and mitigate the inflammation acutely in some way? Yeah, I mean, for cutter or scrape, your body's just doing its, you know, its due diligence and like pain is in many ways a mechanism for the body to say, oh my God, something bad is happening here, right? Your nervous system is informing your brain and then your brain is reacting and saying something bad is happening here. Um, so first of all, I'm not allowed to give medical advice. I'm not a clinician, so I want to make that very clear. But I think in acute inflammation, all of those things are normal and we've kind of the modern modern medicine has allowed for a lot of the conveniences like painkillers that allow us to sort of dampen those responses, right? But when, when inflammation clearly goes awry is in context of if you have an autoimmune condition, mm. if you have psoriasis, if you are, you know, 30% of kids in, in the Western world have eczema, uh, which, is an, which is an inflammatory condition. Um, if you have inflammatory bowel disease, these are all sort of um, examples where your immune system has just gotten out of control. And in fact, even, you know, a lot of the, the damage caused by COVID-19, we realized that in fact, it's our immune system when it's unchecked. Um, and so 
those are situations in which you really do want to dampen the immune system. And in fact, frontline therapies, for instance, in psoriasis, uh, frontline biologics, in um, inflammatory bowel disease, frontline biologics, in rheumatoid arthritis, frontline biologics are all immune dampening, right? So that's a situation where it's very clear this is a bad response. I see. I see. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into later in the discussion, the, the causes and the modern, the variables of the modern world that are driving up a lot of these chronic inflammatory conditions. Before we do that, I want to sort of build up some concepts and some facts for people. A lot of what we're going to talk about is based on a review paper that you wrote recently about inflammatory memory, how our bodies remember inflammatory events and why that's a good thing and why it can also be a bad thing. I think an interesting place to start here is you mentioned a story that was really interesting in that paper, and it's about the famine that happened in the Netherlands in 1944. Can you just briefly describe what happened there and how this starts to tie into this concept of inflammatory memory that we'll talk about? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily try tie into inflammatory memory per se, but it does try into this uh, tie into this idea that our bodies have a remarkable ability to remember our experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is true of inflammatory experiences, but we're realizing that's also true of nutritional experiences. So um, this was sort of the, the uh, you know, the exemplar of public health studies to, to sort of exemplify this, which is um, in the 1940s, there was a famine, uh, the Dutch famine, you know, attributed to World War II and and, uh, events around it, uh, where children that were born to mothers during that period of famine in this community uh, really had long-term consequences for their metabolic health. Um, So they had a higher risk of, you know, weight gain, of diabetes, shorter lifespan, things like that. Whereas in that same community, if children were born before or after, uh, they were didn't have any of these sort of adverse symptoms. So what that said was that if you're developing in utero in a malnutritional situation, your body is now fundamentally altered. And that has nothing to do with genetics because if it was genetics, then you would have, you know, the, the kids that were born before and after having the same um, issues, developing the same issues late in life. Uh, but really environments impact how you uh, develop and, and those impacts are long lasting. And so we now know that they happen through phenomenon called epigenetics or things that are beyond just the DNA code in your genes, uh, but how that DNA is arranged, how that DNA is um, actualized or made into proteins. And, and those are the things that are unfolding of course, the example I gave you is a nutritional example, but we now also understand that if you have, for instance, maternal infection, it's a very similar thing. So ultimately, you know, this idea of inflammatory memory or tissue memory is about how our body adapts to the environment. And, you know, as you sort of touched upon or suggested, like, why is the incidence of inflammatory disease going up in the Western world? Um, our genes have not changed that much in the last 30 or 40 years, or at least not that I know of, right? Mm-hmm. Evolution takes a very, very long time. Um, and yet the incidence of inflammatory disease is going up. We wonder if this could be environmental exposures. Interesting. So, so basically one of the things that you just said is if a woman is pregnant, the developing fetus within her 
can uh, listen to what's going on in terms of her nutrition profile and her calorie consumption and what's going on in that in utero, in utero environment. And the body of the developing baby can effectively remember what was going on in that environment such that it has long-term consequences for the, the health of the adult that will develop. Exactly. I mean, that's what the Dutch famine cohort study really tells us. And that's what experimental studies have shown. Um, and certainly we know from a lot of clinical observations that that's true. I think this is why we pay so much attention to maternal nutrition, maternal infection, um, maternal health. But I must emphasize that there's still a lot of work being done in this space. Um, and so those are early examples of, you know, public health studies that have supported these notions. And we're now starting to unfold exactly how these things happen in various contexts. Yeah. And, and one of the things, um, when we think about the concept of memory, I think when you define it phenomenologically, everyone's got a, a really good intuition for memory. Like we remember things, we all, we all know what that means. Yeah. Um, we store information, uh, that we can use later on. And by default, I think most people naturally think about memory in the context of neurons and the brain. Yeah. Our brains are, can remember things. Um, typically, people will think about that as being stored in the strength of synapses, the connections between neurons. But of course, what you've already started to tell us is that a lot of other cells in our bodies and a lot of other tissues outside the brain are capable of memory. So at a cellular level, how do you think about what memory actually is? Yeah, so the immune system encodes memories in two different ways. The way that it's most famous for encoding memory is um, what is the basis of vaccination, which is um, you have B cells that make antibodies and T cells that have receptors that are similar to antibodies that they don't secrete. And these are really uh, remarkable at looking at different shapes on bad guys, on pathogens, on cancers. And, you know, and identifying these shapes and they get selected based on how well they identify the shapes and then they basically form into memory cells. And this is the basis of why, you know, your COVID-19 vaccination works so well and you're not forming, you know, you're not, people aren't getting so severely sick when they're vaccinated um, because they have these memory cells that can make antibodies and quench the pathogen rapidly. So that's what we call cellular memory. And that's sort of been the hallmark of the immune system and the basis of almost every vaccination that we know, right? Rotavirus, smallpox, um, HPV, what have you. Um, but there's another form of memory that we are, that you know really has come to light in the last, I would say 15 years. Um, and we think of it as, as sort of more non-specific memory. So instead of specifically seeing a certain shape on a bacteria and remembering it, this kind of memory is remembering when you have an inflammatory encounter, like if you have a cut or a scrape. Um, and this time it's any cell um, that is in the immune system that is potentially long lived that remembers this at the level of the DNA, at the level of chromatin. And I was talking about epigenetics. So if you think about it as you know, as a human being, I have a memory of my previous encounters and I encode it in my brain and my neurons. A cell encodes its previous encounters in its brain, which we think is the nucleus. Um, and, and the way it does it is by um, essentially changing its accessibility. So 
genes are usually uh, part of your DNA. They're maintained in chromatin. Chromatin is, um, is um, intertwined into different states. And when these are not being used, chromatin is usually closed because it costs the cell a lot of energy to keep it open. But once a cell experiences an inflammatory encounter, we realize that they not only do they open up their stress response genes, but they never close them, they keep them open. And what that allows the cell to do is if it ever encounters a stress response again, it is now able to respond much more faster because it doesn't need to open chromatin, it doesn't need to do all of these other things that a naive or previously never encountered cell has done. And so, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, so so what you're saying is, um, it's really expensive to turn to keep all the genes on inside every given cell. There's a lot of work and metabolic energy that needs to go into that. So the genes are literally wound up. Most of them are wound up and inaccessible because if you don't need to use them, you don't want to waste energy using them. So if something happens, you get injured or you get an infection, you want to uh, unwind some of the inflammation related genes and turn them on. But what you're saying is that the cells can then sort of keep those genes in, in an open or accessible state so that if you encounter that thing again, they can sort of turn on right away. Exactly. And so it's a way, it's in many ways a cost-saving measure on the cells part, right? I'm just ready to go. Um, and if you think about it, it's sort of like, well, if I've encountered this pathogen before, then I'm likely to encounter it again. Um, so why don't I just stay ready? And why don't I just be alert? I see. And that that makes perfect sense. So it's adaptive because it allows you to respond more quickly the second time you encounter that stimulus that instigated inflammation the first time. But of course, this brings us right to, uh, right to the flip side of this, which is it can presumably become problematic if those genes stay on and the inflammatory response just becomes consti constitutive and you start taking on collateral damage. So, so how do we start to think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a really challenging concept, right? Because then your urges as a scientist say, well, let's just turn on all the genes and like get people ready. Uh, for, you know, the bad guys, like, what if we could be ready for the next pandemic, but hold on, uh, you, you know, too much of a good thing is not always good. Um, and this is what we think underlies a lot of autoimmune conditions when things are unchecked. Um, and so you just have sort of an out of control response. And I think this is the challenge that we're facing now as immunologists is defining how do you activate a cell enough to let it function at its optimal state, but not hyperactivate it to the point where it's going to be going to cause disease? Or how do you change a cell's disease state and stop it from being hyperactivated and bring it back into sort of a healthy zone of activation? And I think this is a major challenge that we're going to have to face and address in the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so do we know, so when you have one of these inflammatory events that causes the chromatin in a cell to unwind so that the inflammation genes can be turned on, does it typically stay unwind so that those inflammation genes are accessible in the future? Or are there cells where the, the cell is very good at winding and unwinding and winding and unwinding those genes? Is that a common thing that you see? You know, we don't know fully 
Um, and in, it's in a large part because it's been hard to look at the chromatin if you at a cellular resolution level. So that's something that we're doing now. Um, the other thing that we don't fully understand is how is this accessibility inherited from one cell to its daughter? Because cells don't live for you know years, mm. um, and yet we know the accessibility keeping this open is if I divide, my daughters are going to have that same imprint. We also don't know how the decisions get made for which genes stay open and which genes close. So what I mean by that is if I'm, you know, if I'm a stem cell and I encounter some kind of inflammatory signal, I'm going to open up a ton of genes. Uh, and yet consistently only a subset of them stay open in the memory form. So how does the cell decide? I, these are the most important ones to keep open. These are the ones that are going to help safeguard me from future threats. Um, these are all questions that we really need answers to because they'll help us develop mechanisms to manipulate that cell state to that prime response state and not hyper responsive state. Yeah, and it's super interesting to think about the epigenetics here when, when, as you mentioned, you think about a cell dividing and giving birth to a new cell, um, because I think what you're hinting at is when a cell divides, the new cell doesn't just sort of start completely reset and start over with a clean slate. It can, at least in some cases, inherit what the other cell uh, learned, <laughs> learned yeah. effectively in, in its previous cell cycle. So um, I think this gets us into the area of you know, one thing it makes me think of is, is the area of, you know, stem cells and new cells being used to repair tissue damage and stuff. So can you start to talk to people a little bit about, um, about skin and tissue damage? So when, a, when you get a cut or a scrape or something, and then your body physically repairs that skin, what's going on there in terms of cell division and, and stem cells and all those things? Yeah. So, so tissues like the skin and the gut and lungs, they're barrier tissues. So they have evolved really sophisticated repair mechanisms, right? Because they have to cope with this stuff every day. And when you have damage, essentially the job of your tissue is to make more tissue, to expand. And that task is assigned to stem or progenitor cells. So these are cells that are, I don't mean embryonic stem cells. These are tissue stem cells. So these are really relegated to that individual tissue. They live there. They have the identity of the tissue, but they also have the ability to become other things within the confines of that tissue. So my skin stem cell is not going to suddenly become a kidney um, in, its, in the skin, right? It's going to give rise to other skin cells, other epithelial cells, other keratinocytes, your outer layer of skin um, as needed. So when you have a cut, uh, at the edge of the wound, the, the progenitor cells multiply. They make more of themselves because you have to generate more cells to make tissue mass, right? And then they migrate to seal the tissue. And so this is what's really interesting about memory is um, one thing that we don't fully understand is, is, is it entirely contained within the cell or do other cells contribute to it as well? And how? Uh, we know that other, you know, you, can, you do have, you can isolate the effects to uh, individual cells themselves, but tissues are really cooperative, you know, multi-system, multi-organs are really multi-tissue units, right? They're not just one cell type. And so um, how all of these things cooperate to make this repair process happen is still very much an active area of investigation. But then as the cell migrates and seals the breach, and that's how you have your sort of 
epithelial layer healed. And underneath, there's a layer of your skin called the dermis, which uh, essentially heals by forming a scar. Um, and this is why when you have a major wound, you, you in fact end up forming a scar and you have scar tissue. It lays granulation tissue, your fibroblast progenitors, or your dermal progenitors multiply, they make um, scar tissue, they put collagen down. Um, and, and so that's how they essentially the job is to seal the breach as fast as possible and not let any sort of harmful agent in. I see. So, so when we think about the skin, there's a bunch of different cell types com that compose the skin tissue. And basically there's, uh, there's effectively always stem cells there sort of sitting and waiting for the appropriate signal, like getting a cut or a physical injury. And, and when they get that signal, they start to divide and differentiate and turn into the new cells that will plug the hole basically. Well, so this is, this is a really interesting point because actually there's stem cells there all the time and they're actively dividing all mm. the time. So, you know, all your dead skin that sloths off, every time anyone exfoliates in the shower, like, you know, all your exfoliating face washes, um, that's all dead skin that's coming off your body that needs to be replaced. And so this is what we call baseline or homeostatic regeneration. And that, that, those new cells are generated by the stem cells that are living in your skin. What happens after injury is it really just kicks it up a notch because mm. now it's not just re replenishing the basal level of cells dying as they're slothed off the surface of their skin. Now it's about making a hole, making new tissue, plugging a big hole. Um, and so that's when, you know, the program really amplifies, but there is this baseline function that your tissue stem cells have. Interesting. So that there's always stem cells there. They're always dividing just to replace the normal right. turnover of cells in our skin that that just happens naturally um is there like is there uh there must be sort of like a baseline rate that the body's expecting that to happen on what happens if uh can you wash your skin too much or too little in terms of uh how it impacts this this constant cycling of those stem cells yeah i mean you know no one's done these kind of studies where they've looked at what happens to your stem cells if you're just like going crazy with showers or exfoliating? I suspect it probably does um, because I think we sort of understand that the stem cells are really sensitive to their environment. And so they're going to respond to what's needed, right? Because they don't want to, if they stop functioning, there's going to be a big hole in your skin. Mm -hmm. um, so I suspect I do, but no one's, I haven't seen that study. I see. Uh, and, and I suppose that this whole process, all of the mechanisms that regulate um, how and when these stem cells are regenerating our tissues, uh, presumably that just starts to break down over time as we age. And that's why as you get older, your skin just starts to heal more slowly and, yeah. and not look the way it used to. Well, what's really interesting is not only do the stem cells, their functionality goes away, but you also have chronic inflammation. Um, and that relationship between chronic inflammation and how your stem cells age is really starting to um, come together. So there's, and, and again, part of that is inflammatory memory because there've been some really interesting studies um, done actually in fruit flies where people give recurrent inflammation. Um, so recurrent infections, recurrent, you know, inflammatory signals. And what you see is you see a phenomenon that's very similar to aging. Your stem cells aren't behaving 
in the way a young stem cell would. Um, and so it's this idea that it's exhausted or it's senescent or it's, um, it's just not functioning as youth. And yet in timescales, it's not an age stem cell. It's just been through that many experiences. Interesting. Interesting. And so, um, so skincare for most of my life is not something I really cared about. Um, but more recently I do, uh, cause skin is super important. Um, it's super important uh, from the perspective of all the things that you've been telling us and you can tell us about what skin does and, and why it's crucial for health. It's also just important from the fact that people are spending you know billions of dollars every year on a multitude of skincare products. And it's yeah. always difficult to parse uh, you know, the, the sense from the nonsense there. Um, I didn't really plan to ask you this, but as, as a scientist with your expertise, what, how do you think about your own skin health? Do you, what, what act, what, what things do you actually do that you think actually, uh, help maximize the integrity of your skin? Yeah. Um, again, I'm not a medical doctor. This is not medical advice. This is an opinion. I have to say that because I can get in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, actually I don't usually do this, but I really think of, there's a recent book by James Hamblin that addresses this topic. Um, I forgot what it's called. I can look it up quickly. <laughs> um, it's called like the science of skin, I think. Um, but there, there's two things that have been proven um, to work in the skin. And that is, um, yeah, the new science of skin. Um, clean the new science of skin. So the two things that have worked, and the reason I'll explain why I brought up James's book, um, are retinols um, and sunscreen. I use sunscreen um, religiously. Um, it's really, really critical. Um, UV damage is real. Um, and I collaborate with a lot of folks who study melanoma. And I, I just, I, even in the winter, if the sun is out, put on some sunscreen. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot emphasize that enough. So can we take these one at a time? So what, what is retinol? Yeah. Retinol is like a vitamin A derivative. Um, and it's, it's thought to help your skin essentially with that turnover process. Um, and then, um, and potentially with collagen production. Um, and, um, Sunscreen essentially just blocks out UV damage, right? So it's going to block out um, the mutagenic effects of UV, and it's also going to block out the other damage because UV does other things other than just cause DNA mutations. It mm -hmm. causes like physical damage to the skin. Sunburn is not great <laughs> for the skin. It's actually really, really harmful. Um, and so those are the two things that that absolutely. Well, I don't know about retinol. I think that's everyone should talk to their dermatologist, but sunscreen is available over the counter. And I highly, 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 highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. And now when, when we think about like UV light, so UV light's super interesting in terms of its effects on physiology, there's the bad side of it. You know, it's mutagenic. It will cause DNA mutations. It will cause other forms of physical damage, as, as you mentioned. The other thing that most people have heard about is that it's related to vitamin D production. Um, it actually modulates various aspects of metabolism and behavior. Uh, believe it or not, that's something I've been learning about recently. And, you know, with all of that stuff in mind, you know, it does good things and it also does bad things. Basically the two poles of, uh, opinion, I'll just say that I hear with respect to like the question of sunscreen and UV radiation and sun exposure are, you know, on the one hand, you 
you have some people who tell you always put on sunscreen anytime you're exposed to the sun for any length of time, no matter what. And then you have other people that will say, avoid sun burns, but make sure you're exposed to sunlight so long as it's not giving you sun burns. Because if you follow the first piece of advice, you're missing out on the benefits of UV radiation. So what are your thoughts there generally? And, and how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely in the, like, put on sunscreen at all times category because again, I think, you know, there's different forms of UV radiation and we can kind of get into the details of that, but by and large, every colleague I've spoken to who works in melanoma, just, you know, or squamosal carcinoma, these are like really devastating cancers, um, or just aging because the damage that's caused to your skin, uh, highly recommend it. So that's kind of where I land. Um, I'm, I, and, 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 that's worked for me. Um, this is why I like to emphasize I'm not a physician, but I have never heard a physician say, don't use sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my opinion on the matter. Got it. Got it. So when we think about you know, the skin and, and what it does and these sort of amazing mechanisms for how it can remember what's happened to it and, and follow up on that with, with faster action in the future, can you start to talk a little bit more about ways that that goes awry, things that happen where you get these chronic inflammatory states. I mean, I'm sure there's any number of examples we can talk about. Um, I have psoriasis myself. I know that there's yeah. other, other examples you could give, but what are some ex- concrete examples of when the sort of inflammatory memory that our cells are capable of um, becomes maladaptive and turns into one of these chronic inflammatory states of the skin? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of examples of that psoriasis being one of them because, you know, I think by and large, psoriasis shows up in the same place over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the big examples of tissue memory, because it doesn't, you know, it it can exacerbate, it can cover larger body areas, but very often folks with psoriasis or atopic dermatitis find this recurrence in the same location, right? So that's always kind of historically been an example of of memory in that same site where the disease will go away and come back and go away and come back. Um, what was your other question? Oh my God, my brain. No, is... I'm just asking Yeah. To talk about examples where you get these chronic inflammatory yeah, states in uh, the skin. The other, you know, there was this really interesting study recently. So again, I must emphasize, this is a relatively new area mm-hmm. um, that was started. You know, we started understanding sort of non-specific inflammatory memory in immune cells um, in the late aughts. And then five years ago, I made this discovery that this also happens in non-immune cells like stem cells. And so it's a really new, relatively recent field. And so we're just trying to understand this. And there's also been links to cancer with inflammatory memory. So one of the, you know, for a very long time, people have appreciated that inflammation and cancer are sort of go hand in hand. People often call cancers wounds that do not heal. This was a really famous um, statement made by a Harold Dravak in the, I want to say the 70s or 80s. Um, but but there was a really remarkable study done in mice in which um, inflammatory memory was linked to pancreatic cancer. So what they did was they inflamed the pancreas and then they let the pancreas go back and become healthy. Um, and what they saw was that this, that when you gave these sort of post-inflamed pancreas carcinogens, they develop cancer much, much 
faster and, and, and the cancer was much worse than healthy, you know, that pancreas that had never seen inflammation before, despite the fact that when you just looked at the post-inflamed or naive quote-unquote pancreas, they looked exactly the same. Again, this was something that was happening at an epigenetic level where there was a memory in the cells and that was leveraged inappropriately um, to drive cancer in this case. In this case, inflammatory mediators uh, drove cancer inappropriately. So this is another situation where, um, you know, you had, and, and what's what the, sort of the good part of that was that those pancreas also healed better. So if you caused the post-inflamed pancreas damage, they healed better. They didn't let any of the enzymes leak into your body cavity, things like that. Um, so on the one side, you're getting more containment, more healing, but on the other side, that same facet is now being hijacked in, in cancers. I see. Yeah. This, this was something that jumped out to me in, in the review paper that you wrote that I read recently. And I never even really thought about this, the idea that physical like tissue damage can be tied to the uh, subsequent probability that you're going to develop something like cancer or other diseases. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned this observation that, you know, mutant mice that actually are good at wound healing, that heal wounds faster, tend to display increased sensitization to oncogenic stimuli. They're, they're more sensitive to things that can cause cancer. Do we know much more about the, the, the mechanisms that connect those dots there? Or, or is that just sort of the, the observation that we have? Yeah. I mean, I think this, so one thing that we see a lot is the same players that are involved in wound healing. I described this process, right? Where like your progenitors need to multiply and they need to migrate. The same sort of things happen in cancer, the same cellular processes. Your tumors are just cells that are multiplying out of control um, in a large part because they have a check on their multiplication or their proliferation has been removed, right? Or their cell death has been removed because in a healthy tissue, once you reach a certain critical mass, you stop dividing. Um, or when you divide too much, you die, right? And so when those checks are removed, you become a tumor. Um, a lot of, because a lot of the same processes are engaged in wounds and tumors, and also those are mirrored in the immune system in wounds and tumors. So a lot of the same features that are uh, critical for wound healing also go awry in tumors. Um, you know, one factor that we found interleukin-17 um, is this inflammatory factor that helps your epithelia adapt to hypoxia, uh, but it's also really bad and is associated with really bad prognosis in different kinds of cancer, including colon cancer. And so is it helping those cancer cells adapt in ways uh, that it helps the wound progenitors adapt, right? Um, and this again comes back to this challenge that in fact scientists have is you can't take something away that it, or give too much of something and just assume it's gonna be fine. Biology is a really fine balance. And this is where it, it becomes important to remember that developing therapies is about navigating that balance. So you're not um, sort of going in and saying, oh, just, just add as much as possible and it'll take care of the problem. I see. I see. So basically cancer is runaway cell division. It's when cells escape the, the normal checks and balances that, that regulate the process of division in, in a way that's, that that's healthy. And so if we think about regeneration and stem cells and stuff, every time those stem cells are meant in some sense to divide and differentiate. So every time that there's damage and they do that, each one of those events is just another chance 
for the checks and balances to break down somewhere and for that to turn into a cancer. Right. I mean, and then you have mitogens, right? For instance, UV with that, that cause damage in cells. Um, so this again is, comes back to a big question, which is, you know, does it matter if the damage is in a stem cell or does it matter if it's in a daughter cell? Um, and how do cells deal with that damage? And if they're not dealing with it properly, are they going to go multiply out of control? Um, the, again, you're asking excellent questions that I don't, or maybe the field doesn't really have answers to that we're all trying to get to the bottom of because they're so fundamental to eradicating these conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like the other thing that's interesting about all of this is, you know, when we think about an inflammatory event being instigated at a barrier tissue, like the skin or in our intestines or something, what we've been talking about are sort of local mem local mechanisms of fairly nonspecific memory. So cells in the skin or in the intestine that sort of live down there can remember and subsequently respond to some inflammatory stimulus better. But then also there's recent observations that I think you mentioned in your paper about how the those mechanisms in the body and the peripheral tissues can also interface with the brain. So places like the insula and the brain can hook up to neurons that physically reach down to the gut and your yeah. brain can keep track of and remember, you know, gut inflammation and things like this. So, so what are we learning there about how the, the brain and the gut say are interacting and how memory is stored at the level of the brain for something that's happening in the periphery? Yeah, this is actually a really, really exciting area. So for a very long time, scientists have known that there is a connection between our mental health and manifestations of inflammatory diseases. Um, and, and we also know that immune cells respond to inflammatory mediators. We know neurons respond to immune mediators. So there was this beautiful study recently by Alicia Royals, and I think she's at the Technion, uh, where she actually found that if you have a peripheral inf infection, in the gut, it's, it's encoded at certain parts of your brain. And when, even when the inflammation goes away, when the infection results, if you just stimulate that part of the brain, um, you're able to rebring, bring that infection or that inflammatory response back. And so the implications are that if we understand the brain more and we understand this axis more, maybe shutting off autoimmune diseases could be entirely based on just treating parts of the brain, right? If I could shut off your psoriasis by figuring out which part of the brain it's encoded in, that would be remarkable. Um, wow. We don't know yet if that's possible, but that's certainly the implication of the study. Interesting. So yeah, the, the brain can literally reach down and, and touch the gut and touch the, you know, the other parts of our body. And it can remember inflammatory events that happened that were localized and contained in the gut or in the skin or somewhere that never got into the brain. And then at least in this one example that you gave, the, the brain can actually turn on that inflammation again. If it, I mean, the implication here is that to turn on that inflammation again, you don't necessarily need the physical stimulus in your gut right. to happen. You might be able to learn to say like, oh, I, I saw this thing over there that came in through my eyeballs and my, my sensory perception that was associated with that. And you could, you could have something sort of driven top down like that. Well, presumably, yes. In the study, they, in fact, has stimulated the specific parts of the brain. So it wasn't, they didn't show that there was a connection between visual stimuli and inflammation. I'm not saying there may, there may be that yet to be determined, but they physically stimulated the locus of the brain that was encoding 
that sort of memory. And so the idea may be that, you know, you stimulate that locus. And so you activate in the peripheral neurons, the secretion of XYZ factors that then trigger the local immune compartment that, that trigger the disease. Um, and so it's this sort of communication between the brain and um, the peripheral system that stim that simulates what the brain feels when you have disease. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I want to circle back to is this idea that, you know, we can, um, you know, our, our likelihood of developing certain metabolic disorders or certain chronic diseases, um, inflammatory diseases can be connected to stuff we're exposed to in utero or in early life. And our, our body remembers something about the things that happened to us at those times. Yeah. And that can have imp implications in adulthood. So if we circle back to the Dutch famine example, that was super interesting for the following reason. So basically Dutch famine happens. Um, children that were developing at that time are pro presumably in some kind of caloric and or nutritional deficit. Their bodies remember this, and this is making them more likely to have certain metabolic diseases in the future. That's pretty intuitive, I think. You know, there's some kind of calorie or nutrient de deficit, and that causes problems down the road for metabolism. M makes a lot of sense. What's interesting is that in the so-called Western world today, we're seeing this rise in chronic inflammation, uh, chronic diseases, this rise in metabolic disorders, and yet we, at least ostensibly, don't have a deficit of calories and nutrition. Like, you know, we can all go to the store and get whatever we want. And yet we're seeing a rise in these things. So how do you start to think about things like diet and how the current diet we have, even though, you know, we're not, uh, most of us, most of the time are getting all the calories and more that we need. We're getting all the nutrition and more than we need. At least we think we are. Why are these things rising in a state of surplus rather than uh, a state of deficit? Well, I think, again, we go back to this idea of too much of a good thing, right? Because you said we're getting all the calories we need and more. Mm. And that's the and more is where the pro problem arises. So, for instance, just the opposite of the Dutch famine example, maternal obesity is associated with increased risk of early onset colon cancer, increased risk of asthma and allergies, there's tons of increased risk in offspring, right? So it, it's not sort of there. I think we have to realize that biology happens at an optimal state, um, it, you know, it's not too little or too much is not good. And what the optimal state is depends on who you are, um, you know, and, but I think that now we have the problem of overnutrition and, and obesity, and that's becoming a global pandemic. That's, you know, that's the next global pandemic, in my opinion. Um, and, and those are situations where you do see increased onset of disease um, and transmission. And I think there are studies that are currently ongoing that are starting to examine how maternal obesity impacts offspring, because that's something that's really, really critical today. Um, you know, the, the, the other area where people are starting to realize that that sort of um, you know, maternal exposures may be playing a role is infections and getting not getting the right signals during development. Um, so there've also been a lot of um, sort of incredible studies that are starting to link certain cytokines, certain inflammatory factors being present at the wrong time during development um, with things like autism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, again, it's still early days, but there are viral infections are, are linked to developmental disorders. So, um, 
So seeing the wrong signal during development can have really lasting consequences. And that, you know, it doesn't mean undernutrition only, overnutrition or not, you know, the wrong inflammatory cue at the wrong time. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about lately to some extent is, um, well, it has to do with fasting, you know, intentionally fasting. Um, it's sort of become trendy again in certain ways for, you know, health and health and wellness reasons. But I'm fascinated by the idea that, you know, history, if you take the, if you look at the long arc of history, you know, virtually every culture and every major religion has incorporated some form of restriction of feeding, some form of fasting yeah. in their cultural practices, right? Ramadan, Lent, you know, Eastern religions often incorporate uh, a fasting in different ways. And, you know, I wonder if this is sort of, you know, none of the people that started all of these practices knew about chronic inflammation and cells in the body and all of the, the science mechanisms that we're untangling today. And yet, somehow they all converge, convergently evolved these practices where they're intentionally not eating things for some period of time. And to me, that's, that's super interesting um, at, at the sort of cultural historical level, but, you know, on the topic of fasting in particular, you know, restricting how many calories and, and things that you're consuming intentionally, what do we, what do we know there about the link between uh, eating too much on the one hand and fasting on the other hand and the propensity to develop certain metabolic or, or inflammatory diseases. Yeah. So I think there are, and this is again, not my area of expertise. Uh, so I'm going to put that out there, but I know there are ongoing studies that, that are, you know, really looking at like defined types of diets um, in controlled ways. Right. So I take one person and I put them on X defined diet and look to see how their immune system is responding. And then, do a little washout and then put them on another defined diet. And so you have the same person and how their immune system changes. And this, the studies, I mean, really show that there are some profound diet specific changes. Uh, beyond that, you know, this is again, really not my area of expertise, uh, but I do agree with you that it's remarkable that so many cultures converged on the same sort of notion of not overnutrition. And the other thing to remember is, you know, when these notions of like controlling your food intake were put in place, they also didn't weren't faced with many of the things that we're faced with, which are things like high fructose corn syrup, uh, the sort of supplements and 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 um, the availability of all these like packaged foods. Right. So I think that we kind of have a double whammy on our hands in many ways. Um, not only are we, not only has our lifestyle changed so dramatically and, and, but our access to the types of foods um, that are particularly harmful may have changed as well. Yeah. And, you know, on the subject of too much of a good thing and thinking about diet and fasting, you know, I've had a number of discussions with people about, you know, all sorts of different aspects of physiology, you know, mitochondrial energetic stuff, yeah. diet, nutrition stuff. And one thing that has come up at least a couple of times on the subject of, you know, too much of a good thing being a bad thing is, you know, whenever many times, at least when we're in deficit in some ways in our, in our body, whether it's in deficit of calories or, or anything else, you know, our bodies often have mechanisms that kick in to counteract those deficits, um, or, or even things like exposure to, uh, you know, oxidative stress and, right. and making our own endogenous antioxidants and things like this. And, and, you know, the idea that's come up a couple of times is if we are constantly ingesting, say, 
every antioxidant out there that we can get from our diet, we never actually allow our bodies to turn on their own antioxidative stress mechanisms. And that could actually be a bad thing. Is that, is that how we can start to think about things like this, that we, that we don't always want to be in surplus because it actually gives our bodies endogenous mechanisms of repair and rejuvenation, a chance to kick in and do their thing. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it, right? I think that one, we're not giving our bodies the, the chance to have repair and repair, regenerative mechanisms. It's the same with the immune system. So there's this sort of long-standing hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis, where people think that you're kind of too clean. Um, and the evidence for this comes from like, for instance, farm children, children raised on farms have lower incidence of asthma um, and, and expo you know, the autoimmune exposure in westernized countries is so much higher, but it's not going up in all non-westernized countries. And then you look at countries where they've undergone westernization and exposure to um, sort of, uh, you know, environmental pollutants or different dietary intakes, and you see that, that autoimmune exposure go up. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's sort of like, your immune system has evolved to an optimal state of functioning. Too clean is not great either. Um, and so all the over antibiotic usage and the, and the sort of urban lifestyles have also contributed to this um, increased incidence of, of autoimmune onset. Interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to maybe ask you about was when we think about memory in general, and we think about how memories are instantiated at the level of cells doing stuff. You know, my background's in neuroscience and, and I think the bias of most people when they think about memory is to think about yeah. neurons in the brain. And we touched on this before, but you know, I think if you ask a, the, if you just pluck a random neuroscientist from their lab for a moment, you ask them how memories are stored, they'll say, well, it, it probably has something to do with the strength of connections between synapses. And that at least has something to do with it. Um, although there is, you know, we still really don't know what a memory engram in the brain is. And, and there is some debate of the extent to which it's, you know, connections between synapses, between neurons versus say something happening in the nucleus to do with epigenetics mm -hmm. and, and gene expression regulation. So, you know, given what you talked about before, for these uh, peripheral forms of memory that certain cells have that involve arranging DNA in certain ways and keeping chromatin in certain configurations. When you think about memory at the cellular level, do you think that different types of cells in different parts of the body, brain versus immune system versus skin versus this versus that, do, they, do you think they might all have distinct forms of cellular memory or might there be a common core of cellular mechanisms to do with things like chromatin rearrangement that is common to all forms of cellular memory? Yeah, I think that, so, so I think how memory is established, the rules are probably going to be similar. Like it's probably going to involve uh, similar types of enzymes that open up chromatin, um, you know, parts of the chromatin that regulates other parts, like for instance, distal enhancers. Um, I think what will be unique to cell types is, and situations is, um, what part of their DNA is accessible. So I, what I mean by that is if a cell sees a virus versus seeing another dying cell, um, it may likely remember different things. Um, and then if that cell is a neuron versus a, versus a macrophage, it may likely remember different things. But these are all things that need to be worked out. It, you know, at what level is memory encoded? How cell-specific is it? Um, how do different 
if you have a tissue with many different cell types or an organ with many different cell types, which of those encode how much memory and which cell matters or do they all matter together? Because if we're gonna reset your skin from forming psoriasis, we need to treat all the cells that matter, not just one cell type, right? So those are the kinds of questions that we really need to start digging down into to understand how our tissues remember their encounters. Um, and importantly, how do we manipulate that to reset it, for instance, in aging, for instance, in disease? Mm -hmm. So given, you know, given how big of a problem chronic inflammation is, given that it's on the rise and that on the one hand, we, you know, we know that there's connections between things like diet and lifestyle and in utero, in utero environment, all of these things with inflammation. But at the same time, on the other hand, we really don't know all the details, at least not at the level that allows us to, to control and fine tune these things. Are there any clear cut pieces of advice that are rooted in, in what we know scientifically that can help people minimize their odds of developing chronic inflammatory states? Or is the knowledge for that really not there yet? Um, again, I always like to remind people I'm not a clinician, but this is what I would do exercise and, you know, like eat a balanced diet, um, and consult your physician. Um, I think there's studies on their way now that are ongoing that are starting to look more precisely at how individual lifestyle factors impact onset of chronic disease. Right. And I think that's going to require a level of personalized medication because it's not just one gene or one thing. There's families in which there's twins where, you know, identical twins, one will develop psoriasis, one will not. And, and so um, it's very hard to sort of give advice on like, if you do this, you're never going to develop a, a chronic disease because it is a multifactorial disease. It is so challenging to treat um, and, and so, you know, I think diet, um, we know that, you know, obesity is associated with onset of many, many chronic diseases. We know lifestyle things, lifestyle choices like smoking, um, not the greatest for many chronic diseases. Um, and we know that exercise, um, which helps, I guess, goes back to sort of your, your, uh, obesity index and your BMI, um, are the sort of key things that you can control and lifestyle choices that you can make that are associated with less onset of disease. But to say, if you take this magic pill, you're never going to get disease. I don't, I don't think we're there. Yeah. So, so in some sense, the, the best pieces of advice are, are fairly commonsensical exercise right. regularly is important and not, there's a couple of things I want to ask about diet here. So not being in super caloric surplus all the time is good. And I guess there's many strategies one can take to do that. One could be to develop your own fasting ritual, whatever that is, um, and not, not overindulge too much, but that's very difficult for people. But, you know, the other thing that you mentioned, which people always mention here, but I think is, um, it's, it's really, it's really hard to act on this because there's some ambiguity, you know, eating a balanced diet, but how do you personally, like I understand you're not a physician stuff. How do you start to think about what a balanced diet is? Because for most of my life, the balanced diet I was told by the department of health uh, right. in the form of the food pyramid is clearly at the very least, I, I'm, I'm confident in saying that's clearly not 
the best diet one can be on. So how does one even begin to think about what a balanced diet even should be? Yeah, I agree with you. I think the, I disagree with the food pyramid. Uh, personally, I don't think you should be eating like loaves of bread. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I do love carbs. So, you know, it's, it's always a challenge. Um, but generally I think like a Medi- I've always viewed a Mediterranean diet, right. Rich in, um, rich or, or food, lots of vegetables, um, fermented foods, um, don't have too much processed food. Um, but I don't give up any aspect of like, I'm not big into ketosis or, but yeah, I don't think cutting out any food group is necessary. Um, I think it's just about sort of, um, not overindulging and, and being going for the fruits and vegetables. That's just my, yeah, no. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, the other thing that you mentioned that has come up a number of times in, in conversations I've had on the podcast is the gut microbiome. And that basically the two things that stuck in my mind are, you know, getting a good amount of fiber and getting a decent amount of fermented foods are generally going to be good for the gut microbiome. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a hundred percent. I mean, all the data suggests that. Um, Christopher's vegetables are fantastic, um, for the gut microbiome, um, yogurt, you know, the things that you don't want to eat as a kid are basically the things you should (laughs) eat. Like if you're, if your kid is throwing his broccoli away, he should be eating that broccoli. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, we've, we've covered a lot, actually, uh, quite, quite a diverse array of, uh, subjects that connected together here. Are there any things that you want to reiterate for people as takeaway points or, or any final thoughts you want to leave people with on the general subject of, of inflammatory memory and, and related things? Um, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, there is this real desire in people, including myself, uh, to have absolute answers, right? Is this a good or good thing or a bad thing? Um, and, and I don't think our body works that way. I think there's, it's really hard as a scientist to speak in absolutes. Um, but what I think is remarkable is that everything you do, your cells remember. Um, and, you know, whether they unleash that power to help you heal or help you fight pathogens or whether it's sort of taken a bad turn and caused disease. Um, I think the next decade or so or longer will be really focused on figuring out how that decision is made. And once we know that, it's going to really revolutionize how we treat diseases, how we prevent diseases, because that would be the ultimate goal. All right. Well, Dr. Shruti Nayak, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.